Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 36th installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. The 133 talks given by Pope John Paul II between the five years 1979-1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. Legislation. When Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he refers to something everybody in his audience knew perfectly well and felt himself bound to in virtue of God Yahweh's commandment. Nevertheless, the history of the Old Testament shows that the life of the people, united to God Yahweh by a special covenant, as well as the lives of individuals, often moved away from this commandment. The same point is shown by a summary glance at the legislation richly documented in the books of the Old Testament. The prescriptions of the Old Testament law were very severe. They were also very specific and entered into the smallest concrete details of life. See, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 13. Numbers chapter 30 verses 7 through 16, Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4, and chapter 22 verses 13 through 21, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 through 21, etc. One can presume that as the legislation of effective polygamy became evident in this law, there was an increased need for fixing its juridical extent and securing its legal limits. Hence the great number of prescriptions and also the severity of the punishments laid down by the lawgiver for breaking such norms. On the basis of the above analyses of Christ's appeal to the beginning in his discourse on the dissolubility of marriage and the certificate of divorce, it is evident that he clearly sees the fundamental contradiction contained in the marriage law of the Old Testament inasmuch as it accepted effective polygamy, that is, the institution of concubines in addition to legitimate wives, or the right of cohabitation with a slave woman. One can say that this law, while combating sin at the same time, contained in itself the social structures of sin. In fact, it protected and legalized them. In these circumstances, the essential ethical meaning of the commandment, do not commit adultery, necessarily suffered a fundamental revaluation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ reveals this meaning again, and thus passes beyond its traditional and legal restrictions. It is perhaps useful to add that in the interpretation of the Old Testament, while the prohibition of adultery is marked, one might say by a compromise with the concupiscence of the body, the opposition to sexual deviations is clearly defined. The relevant prescriptions which impose capital punishment for homosexuality and bestiality confirm this opposition. As for the behavior of Onan, son of Judah, whose name is the origin of the modern term Onanism, sacred scripture says that what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. 
Genesis chapter 38, verse 10. Taken in its entirety, the marriage law of the Old Testament places the procreative end of marriage in the foreground. In some cases, it tries to implement the equality of women and men before the law. For example, it explicitly says about the punishment for adultery, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. But on the whole, it judges the woman differently and treats her with greater severity. One should perhaps draw attention to the language of this legislation, which is, as always in such cases, an objectifying language of the sexology of that time period. It is also an important language for the whole of the reflections on the theology of the body. We find in it the explicit confirmation of the character of shame that surrounds what in man belongs to sex. The sexual is even considered in some sense impure, especially in the case of physiological manifestations of human sexuality, uncovering nakedness. See, for example, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, and verses 17 through 21, is stigmatized as the equivalent of performing a complete illicit sexual act. The very phrase seems expressive enough. There is no doubt that the lawgiver sought to use the terminology corresponding to the consciousness and practices of society at that time. In this way, the language of Old Testament legislation should convince us not only that the physiology and bodily manifestations of sex are known to the lawgiver, but also that they are evaluated in a definite way. It is difficult to avoid the impression that this evaluation has a negative character. This certainly does not cancel the truths we know from Genesis, nor can one accuse the Old Testament, and among others, also the legislative books, of being a sort of precursor of Manichaeanism. The judgment about the body and sex expressed in it are not primarily negative or even severe, but rather marked by an objectivism motivated by the intention of setting this area of human life in order. It is not concerned directly with the order of the heart, but with the order of social life as a whole at the basis of which stands, as always, marriage and the family. When one considers the sexual problematic as a whole, one should perhaps briefly turn one's attention to another aspect, namely, the link between morality, the law, and medicine, as shown in the relevant books of the Old Testament. They contain many practical prescriptions in the area of hygiene or medicine, characterized more by experience than science, according to the level reached at that time. See, for example, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, chapter 15, verses 1 through 28, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. In our time, by the way, the link between experience and science is evidently still relevant. In this wide area of problems, medicine always closely accompanies ethics. And ethics, like theology, seeks its collaboration, the prophets. When in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Christ says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, and immediately adds, But I say to you, it is clear that he wants to rebuild in the consciousness of his audience the ethical meaning that belongs to this commandment, distancing himself from the teachers, the official experts of the law. But in addition to the interpretation that comes from tradition, the Old Testament offers us another tradition for understanding the commandment you shall not commit adultery. It is the tradition of the prophets. When they referred to adultery, they wanted to remind Israel and Judah that their greatest sin was abandoning the one true God in favor of the cult of various idols that had been adopted easily and thoughtlessly by the chosen people in contact with other peoples. In this way, what is characteristic of the language of the prophets is the analogy with adultery rather than adultery itself. Yet such an analogy also helps one to understand the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and its interpretation, which, as noted, is absent in the legal texts. In the revelations of the prophets, particularly in Isaiah, Hosea, and Ezekiel, the God of the covenant, Yahweh, is often represented as bridegroom, and the love with which he joined himself to Israel can and should be equated with the spousal love of the couple. Because of its idolatry and desertion of God, the bridegroom, Israel commits a betrayal before him that can be compared to that of a woman in relation to her husband. It commits, in fact, adultery with eloquent words and often in extraordinarily drastic images and comparisons. The prophets present the love of Yahweh, the bridegroom, as well as the betrayal of Israel, the bride, who throws herself away in adultery. This is a topic that we must take up again in our reflections when we analyze the problem of the sacrament. See Theology of the Body 104. But already now we should touch upon it as far as necessary for understanding Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28 and for appreciating the renewal of ethos implied in these words. But I say to you, while Isaiah emphasizes in his texts, above all the love of Yahweh the bridegroom, who in all circumstances goes to meet the bride, overlooking all her infidelities, Hosea and Ezekiel abound in comparisons, that show above all the ugliness and moral evil of the adultery committed by the bride, Israel. In the next meditation, we will try to enter still more deeply into the texts of the prophets to clarify further the content corresponding to the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, in the consciousness of those who listened to the Sermon on the Mount. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 36th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. In considering this catechesis, it's important for us to remember just where we've been. Pope John Paul II has been treating the words of Christ, what the Lord said during his time among us on this earth. How the Lord Jesus Christ appeals to our human heart. 
He's not preaching to the trees or the mountains or the rivers, but to human beings, to us. And he knows of what he speaks because he himself has a human heart and because with the Father and the Spirit, he is the creator of humanity. This part of John Paul II's Theology of the Body is focusing on commandment and ethos, the commandments. We know the Big Ten, they're all the different mitzvah in the Old Testament, 613 commandments, and ethos. We'll have a great deal about the ethos in our previous presentation. Legislation and the prophets are the two primary concerns in this 36th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. Legislation, another way to speak about the commandments, and the prophets, a different part of the Old Testament. We have the major and the minor prophets. All of Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching correcting, growing in virtue and holiness. The legislation or the law, the five books of Moses, and then, of course, the prophets. And they all speak about what our Lord is speaking about, about the purity of heart necessary to not look upon another with a disordered desire. Five times in this catechesis, Pope John Paul II addresses the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Christ's audience knew the sixth commandment. It's not as if he was coming down Sinai himself. In point of fact, the Lord Jesus, before he was incarnate, has always been the eternal Son of the eternal Father, one with the Spirit. And in that regard, it was our Lord who gave Moses the commandments on Sinai. Christ knows the commandments, and Christ knew his audience knew the commandments. And in point of fact, the commandments of God are the revealed expression of the natural law inscribed in our very being, inscribed in our very hearts. So even those who hear Christ today, in this year, we too know the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, or if you prefer its Spanish rendition, do not commit impure acts, which is even broader. Christ's audience, however, not only knew the Sixth Commandment, his audience felt bound by the Sixth Commandment. Again, the commandments of God are not the Ten Suggestions, they're the Ten Commandments. It's not multiple choice or choose your favorite three. Christ's audience then, and please God, his audience now, we feel bound by the sixth commandment. God has said this. These are directions from heaven, and we are anxious to do our Father's bidding, to glorify God in our bodies, to respect those of our neighbors. Pope John Paul II, in his 36th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, points out that Old Testament polygamy distorted the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment, which is a part of the natural law, which is inscribed in our human hearts, it was distorted. There was a disfiguration of the law in its practice, as recorded in the Old Testament by the polygamy. In our last catechesis, John Paul II identified several of the players, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, and so many of the women with whom they were liaison. 
But when our Lord addresses the human heart, when he appeals to our hearts, it is to correct this distortion, that we might not be deceived, but that we might live in truth, the truth of our very nature, the truth of our being, made and redeemed by God. Pope John Paul II points out that it was Christ who reveals the original intent and passes beyond the traditional and legal restrictions of the sixth commandment. So in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord does appeal to the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you have heard it said, but he takes it deeper. But I say to you, whoever looks upon another in a disordered way, with a disordered desire, has already committed adultery in the heart. So this is a deepening of the sixth commandment, echoing that other part of the Sermon on the Mount when the Lord says, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. To look upon the other as God sees them, not in the disordered way, only as an object of pleasure. Christ the Lord wants to rebuild in the consciousness of his audience, then and now, the ethical meaning that belongs to the sixth commandment. When Pope John Paul II was a younger man, he was a professor, focusing especially on ethics, what good we should do and what evil we should avoid or repent if we've done it. And so when he is pointing out that Christ is trying to rebuild the consciousness, the understanding, the appreciation of the ethical meaning, the content of the sixth commandment, it's because Wojtyla, John Paul, recognizes Christ, the great moral teacher, trying to bring those who heard him along. And not only those who heard him back then, when the Lord first uttered these words, whoever looks with lust upon another has already committed adultery, but even his audience in the present, until he should return in glory at the end of time on the last day when the trumpets sound, to separate the sheep from the goats. There is an ethical meaning, what good we should do, what evil we should avoid, that is proper, that belongs to the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit impure acts. There is meaning to this. They are not just words. Pope John Paul II points out that the prophets help us to interpret and understand the sixth commandment as part of the analogy between husband and wife, God and Israel. So the prophets accuse a backslidden Israel of being promiscuous, of catting around, as it were, not being faithful to the covenant once entered into with God by dabbling with other gods, little g, false gods, the gods of their neighbors, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So while the sixth commandment is proper to the Decalogue found in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, the prophets too take up the same truth, the same call from God to fidelity. Pope John Paul recognizes the analogy used by the prophets, and what is important in an analogy is not only the part which is similar, something is like something, but also, very important, the difference. And so, as husband and wife are to be faithful to each other, God is always faithful to his people, to Israel of old, the church, even until Christ should return in glory. So unlike the analogy, husband and wife, God and Israel, 
Sometimes in thought, sometimes in word, sometimes in deed, the husband or the wife, either or both, are not faithful. But God is always faithful, and that's a big difference. The God of the covenant, Pope John Paul II points out to us, is often represented as the bridegroom. And the love with which he joined himself to Israel can and should be, says Pope John Paul II, equated to the spousal love of a couple. In the earlier catechesis, we saw the importance that the spousal meaning of the body had. And now we see that the spousal love of the couple can and should be equated with the love with which God has joined himself to his people Israel. This we see in the prophets. We see perfectly in Christ Jesus, who is the bridegroom of his bride, Mother Church. The spousal love of the couple is not merely corporeal, although our society, our age, would have us fixate on the physical aspects of love. But to share the depths of one's joys and sorrows, hopes and fears, longings, this is also a part of spousal love, and indeed could be considered the greater part quantitatively speaking. You consider the hours spent with each other concerning these things. And God longs for us to be with him forever on high. Pope John Paul II reminds us that there have been punishments for breaking the norms which limited polygamy, and they were severe punishments. God is not a laissez-faire God. Go ahead, Israel. Go ahead, my people. Do whatever you want. There were severe punishments meted out in the here and now as a way to discourage bad behavior. Polygamy is bad behavior. It is against monogamy. It is against the fidelity called for by God. Some of the bad behavior which Pope John Paul II highlights in this catechesis are as follows. Polygamy, multiple wives, concubines, so having consorts who are not married, legitimate wives, plural, so that's polygamy in another sense, cohabitation with a slave woman, homosexuality, bestiality, onanism. All of these are sexual deviations, it's deviancies. They're clearly defined and displeasing in the sight of of the Lord. It's important for us to remember that Pope John Paul II gave this catechesis some 30 years ago, but he's building on truths given millennia ago. Moses, the prophets, human nature is the same, the call to holiness is the same, and these things are against our nature, polygamy, concubinage, cohabitation, homosexuality, bestiality, onanism, which is withdrawal, referring to onan in the Old Testament, sexual deviations. It's not just in our second millennia that deviancies have arisen or had pride of place, no pun intended, but Pope John Paul II recognized the deviancies of our age for what they are, a need for God's grace, a need for the call to repentance and conversion, there is no one who is without sin. All of us need to be conformed more and more to the heart of Jesus, pierced for love of us and for the Father. 
There are other sins, but this theology of the body is focusing so much on sexual sins, corporeal sins, sins in the body. We're called to keep all of the commandments, not just the ones about justice and peace, but even the ones about purity of heart. Pope John Paul II continues his 36th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, by emphasizing again the marriage law of the Old Testament places the procreative end of marriage in the foreground. There are some who say, oh, the church is over the procreative aspect of marriage. Not so. Here, Pope John Paul II is reminding us that the procreative end of marriage, one of the goals of marriage, is in the foreground, in the forefront. There are many public associations one can have, partnerships in business, clubs and friendships, all the like. But holy marriage is a special sort, which especially involves the begetting of children with the aid of the Holy Spirit, God who gives the soul, the mother and the father in holy marriage giving the body. Pope John Paul II recognizes that there was an attempt at parity, at equality, before the law when both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be punished. And he cites the 20th chapter of the book of Leviticus, verse 10, when we read in the gospel about the woman caught in adultery, where's the man? Well, the book of Leviticus would have them both put to death by stoning, not just the one. Pope John Paul II recognizes that when we read the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, when we read the prophets, they present the sexology of the time, the understanding of human sexuality in that age. And while we live in a modern age, a contemporary age, with so many advances in so many fields, neutron microscopes, space travel, supercomputers. We have many technological advances. The human body is still the human body, and human sexuality is still human sexuality. Male and female, he created us. In the divine image, he created us. These are things which time and technical development do not, cannot change. For Pope John Paul II, the Old Testament legislation and the language of the Old Testament legislation is important for the whole of the reflections of the theology of the body. So here we've had, in so many catechesis, Pope John Paul II reflecting on the words of Christ, who was referring back to the Old Testament legislation, you shall not commit adultery, the sixth commandment of God, not the ten suggestions, but the ten commandments, and we're bound in God's providence by his grace to keep his commandments, so it will go well with us in the land, not only the here and now, but even our heavenly homeland for which we long in God's mercy. When Pope John Paul II stresses the importance of the Old Testament language, the legislation, legislative language, it's important for us to remember that he himself is a student of language, philology, before he was studying philosophy and theology to become a priest. Words have meaning. They mean things. And Pope John Paul II even speaks about a theology of the body, that the body speaks volumes. If a picture is worth a thousand words, you see 
someone's smile, you may well have an idea that they are a happy, a joy-filled person. Or if you see a frown and tears, you may know that sorrow is at hand. Pope John Paul II finally reminds us that what is sexual has been considered in some senses impure. It was stigmatized, evaluated in a negative way. And if this is the way so many passages of sacred scripture presents sexual realities, it's important to remember that it's after the fall. It's not how it was in the beginning when God made heaven and the earth. All that is seen and unseen, including ourselves, including the body, which is part of his good creation. But alas, we have fallen. But Christ has not left us to our own devices. He has come to save us to redeem us, body and soul, to give us the grace we need to avoid these deviations of polygamy or concubinage, cohabitation, homosexuality, bestiality, onanism, all of these things and more. Christ has come to save us from. These things are consequences of the fall, but Christ has risen, and he calls us to live and move and have our being in him. Until next time, God bless you.